This is an ABC podcast. October the 5th, 2017 was a Thursday and it was supposed to be a day like any other in Hollywood, but an article published in the New York Times about Harvey Weinstein changed all that. Hello, I'm Jason DeRosso and this is The Screen Show. And in this episode, I'm going to be speaking to the director of a new film about the journalists Megan Tui and Jodie Cantor, who were the first to report on allegations of sexual misconduct against Harvey Weinstein. The film is called She Said, and it stars Kerry Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as the women on Weinstein's trail. It's directed by actor-turned-filmmaker Maria Schrader, whose best-known recent work was the miniseries Unorthodox and a pretty great sci-fi robot romance called I'm Your Man. She Said is an impressive journalistic thriller that builds and builds. There's a lot you'll recognise in this film. It follows the conventions of movies like All the President's Men and Spotlight. The two young journalists go through the paces, they pound the city pavements, they knock on doors, they drive cheap hire cars to far-flung suburban homes to chase a lead. Many doors get slammed in their faces and... A lot of people just hang up the phone. They spend their time pleading with the sources that do speak to them to go on record. And they also manage up trying to convince their editors at the New York Times not to pull the plug on what at first seems like a story that lacks hard evidence. She Said is a film that focuses on the experiences of non-celebrity survivors, apart from Ashley Judd, who appears as herself and was a key source in the final article. The film focuses on women who worked with Weinstein and had signed strict non-disclosure agreements. Actors Samantha Morton, Jennifer Ely, Angela Yeo appear as these women, often in simple two-handed scenes over a cafe table where they recount their experiences. These are testimonies of abuse that happened when they were young women. And as they recount these experiences, the scenes are full of complex emotional layers, sorrow, regret, bitterness, anger. Director Maria Schrader, working with a screenplay by British playwright and screenwriter Rebecca Lenkiewicz, who wrote that black and white film about a nun set in 1960s Poland, Ida. Well, Schrader depicts a complex chess game between the journalists and their sources on the one hand and Weinstein and his people on the other. I particularly enjoyed the scenes inside the offices of the New York Times. And yes, these are the actual offices that we see on screen. They're directed with unfussy realism, but they're gripping to watch. The newspaper editorial debates about ethics and strategies are fascinating. We get to see a working team forming around these two like cogs in a machine that slowly start to turn. Meanwhile, the film depicts Weinstein pushing back. He doesn't appear until the film's final sequences, and even then we only see him framed from behind as a bald patch and a pair of very broad shoulders. This is a directing choice that, among other things, emphasises just how imposing he was physically. For the rest of the film, in his absence, the power he wields is clear. We experience it as a physical cringe, a palpable dread in the women who knew him. We also feel his presence in the men. There's a smooth-talking legal emissary who turns up at the paper to minimise Harvey's behaviour and declare that the producer has started educating himself and is trying to do better. And there's an embittered defector from the Miramax office who has things he wants to get off his chest but looks over his shoulder like a mafia turncoat, afraid he's about to get whacked. She said, makes you feel the emotional stakes of this story. It's a film about history being made in the battle between those who have had enough after suffering in silence for too long and those in power who see a change coming that threatens their very existence. In the middle, the two young female journalists who the film makes a point of showing are juggling family life, motherhood, postnatal depression, husbands, and turn up and do their job day after day in the face of threats, doubts, indifference. I've read one criticism of Kazan's performance as being a little overstated, but for me, she channels a kind of straightforward ethical conviction that actually made me think that youthful idealism, perhaps with a dash of naivety, is something that you actually need to truly confront the powerful. Director Maria Schrader is coming up. What is it exactly that we're looking at here? We're looking at extreme sexual harassment in the workplace. 
These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings with a producer, an employer. They were hopeful. They were expecting a serious conversation about their work or a possible project. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. They claim assault and rape. If that can happen to Hollywood actresses, who else is it happening to? Maria Schrader, welcome to The Screen Show. Thank you very much, Jason. Now, obviously, this must have been a a really interesting challenge for you as a director. Um, You're dealing with a story that's so important, but also uh, in your approach, I'm sure you didn't want to exploit unnecessarily the trauma and the deep emotions connected with this story. It must have been a difficult approach, and I know you've thought about it carefully. So, So tell me about that, first of all. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a complex question already. <laughs> well, it is uh, it is intimidating at first, you know, these various layers of reality and um, making a f- fictional film about uh, people who are all living right now out in the world. Every character, you know, has the name, carries the name of a real person. So we are dealing with true experiences of real people. And on top, the New York Times opens their newsroom for the first time (laughs) for a feature film. So this is, again, a great responsibility. Um, I think the only way uh, to not be yeah, too intimidated by all of that is to do your research and to um to contact all these people and this choice has been made from very early on to have this project to be very collaborative and to include all these women all these voices who wanted to be included and who wanted to to contribute so it was a living process and i couldn't be more grateful for having these dialogues specifically of course with the with the two journalists in the center Jody Cantor and Megan Tui but then also survivors and the board of the New York Times and and be surrounded by so many generous people who were willing to answer all our questions Megan Tui and Jody Cantor um, played by Kerry Mulligan and Zoe Kazan in in the film so wonderfully I think they're an interesting couple of course what comes to mind is is all the president's men you know this and and other films of course classic films about investigative journalists spotlight but michael mann's in the insider i think as well but the interesting thing i think about this film is that with these two there's a certain and i don't mean this in a bad way at all i mean this in a very sort of innovative way really there's an ordinariness to them which you you lean into there's a sense first of all that they're juggling personal life and professional life, and it's a juggle. There's that struggle for them personally. But also there's this wonderful way in costuming that, and the film tends to begin, this film sort of begins in summer. And so you haven't framed them like, you know, in cliched ways that cinema often does as powerful people physically, or you've almost lent into the fact that they're young women, professional women, it's summer, there's a scene where they wear the same white dress almost and they comment on that. And I thought that was so interesting because physically there's a sense of ordinariness, femininity, whatever. But of course, in their actions and what they're doing, they are so powerful and what they end up achieving is so powerful. And I like that dichotomy. There's not a sense of you wanting to sort of um, mystify them or make them into these sort of superheroes, there's almost this rigorous attempt to say, no, 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 these are, their power doesn't come from a kind of surface layer or costume. It it comes from what they do, their behavior and their persistence and their intelligence. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, that depiction of them and their, and this very almost realist um, depiction of these two young women? Well, thank you for describing this all in so beautiful words. And it's exactly what I have, what we wanted to do, you know, to to also stay true to that kind of reality. You know, we, on the one hand side, we have these A-plus journalists, this A-class, very knowledgeable, very fierce, very 
passionate uh, uh, people when it comes to their work, but at the same time, there are working mothers. And what does that entail? And uh, what is uh, what is the reality for uh, working mothers today at the workplaces? And yes, um, I wanted it to be also in that sense real and not not creating a bigger than life portrait of you know only movie heroes which we do not which we know do not exist in real life but these people do exist in real life and that is very important also for the story because what is the story it's so big already and in in itself and to make clear that people were incredibly courageous to, for instance, share their most traumatic experiences with Jodie and Megan and take the risk to become a public figure with that. But there were people like you and me and also Megan, you know, there are people like you and me, they ride the subway, they come late for uh, for appointments, they struggle with their time spending with the children and, you know, sharing parenthood with their husbands who also have important jobs, you know, and to include all of that was just felt so much richer than leave it out. Because at the very end, and I'm stopping my monologue in a second, at the very end, yes, there are a lot of similarities with um, with all the president's men in the core of the investigation, what they investigate, what is the topic, the subject matter. This is the big difference because, you know, it's the collision of the most intimate personal thing people would share with them and then coming forward and being being out there in the in the public eye. So this resonates, I think, with all of us and not only with women, because we all share these kind of stories, these kind of stories of, you know, what does it mean living, being educated, starting to work in a, in a, in, in a society, which is, you know, partly very, very, you know, male dominated. Um, and brutal. I mean, it's a society. In brutal. Yes, yeah. exactly. They couldn't, they couldn't easily, you know, leave the the subject of their investigation in the newsroom and then go home. They feel the echo of the story they're dealing with wherever they look at. There is one moment in a bar, though, where um, uh, Megan and Jodie have gone to to discuss with Rebecca Corbett, played by Patricia Clarkson, who's the assistant managing editor of the New York Times, and they're discussing the story very early on and they're approached by a couple of, well, one slightly drunk guy, Maybe not even that drunk, actually. I shouldn't excuse his his behaviour for that. But he's he's very forward and quite uh, quite vulgar, actually, in his approach to them. And it's during the day, and they're clearly not dressed up to go out, or you know, it's just not. There's nothing appropriate about this approach. But Kerry Mulligan, you have her react very fiercely, and it's one of the few times in the film where we also see a kind of um, and a capacity for aggressiveness in 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 a self defensive mode there, and I was wondering about that scene. Is that scene directly was that recounted to you, or the screenwriter by Megan Tui? Did that actually occur, or was that something you've put in as a kind of moment there to sort of as a moment of texture, almost a very important dramatic moment? Yes, I don't even know. I don't even have an answer if this really is, is if this is an invention or if this was reality. But I remember very clearly to it for me. I encouraged Carrie to go further and further and further and to almost you know overreact to uh, because there are very few but to me incredibly important moments. Uh, where we understand what weight they are carrying uh, with getting to know these stories they've sh- been shared with them and having this responsibility, almost a personal responsibility. This person trusts me so, so much. And, and what if we never be able to publish the story? You know, what, and, and even worse, what if no one cares? And I think, 
you know, while finding out more and more about systemic complicity, yeah, you know, it's the the sensitivity. I don't know. I think the nerves were kind of black. Yeah. And 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 I wanted her to really to not being able to take it any longer, which was a normality for the longest time for all of us. You know, this chauvinistic daily approach, like normal daily sexism. And at one point, you know, it's just enough. And this is what happened after, you know, the article came out. I couldn't believe the degree to which the non-disclosure agreements that had been signed by some of these uh, survivors, some of these women that stretched back to the nineties. I couldn't believe the the degree to which they, they, these women were sort of muzzled. They were chained. Um, they couldn't go to doctors or, or psychologists without first asking Weinstein's people, you know, um, they couldn't speak to family and so forth. In, in the aftermath of this article, have those types of non-disclosure agreements been uh, outlawed, been, been, you know, is it, is it, is it still possible to write those kinds of restrictive agreements? See, I'm not the most knowledgeable uh, uh, person to answer this, but I, I know for sure that for instance, Zelda Perkins, you know, she started an NGO and she's really very actively working on that. She, I think she helped changing the law if yes. I'm not mistaken, and in she's, Canada, she's played in, by Samantha Morton wonderfully in this. Um, if I, yes. I, I, I'm, I'm conscious of time, if that that's okay, if you don't know that particular answer, it's it's uh, I, I suspect quite a quite a quite a specialized sort of legal answer. But the other thing I was going yeah. to mention is that there's audio, of course, in this film that you use uh, over images of empty hotel interiors. Yes. And it's audio we've heard before. It's audio of Weinstein, and I forget the woman's name now. I'm sorry, but she she was wearing Ambra Batilana Gutierrez, right? Yeah. And he's trying to get her to come up to his room, and it's an awful audio because she's resisting and resisting, and you just hear the extent to which he would try and manipulate someone. Um, and at a certain point, it's revealed in the film that he actually bought the rights to this audio. Mm-hmm. And he, or he tried to. Um, clearly, obviously, that's that's no longer the case. That you were able to use the audio in the film, but I was just amazed that he could even buy the audio um, mm-hmm. of, of this person he was targeting. That was so incriminating. Amazing. Yes, yes. I mean, it was one of the findings uh, of of, of Megan and Jody. Uh, this audio tape, and then. And then they contacted the the prosecutor by then, you know, Linda Fairstein, and and asked why this case has been dropped. It's a, yeah, it's one of these moments, and we were not sure in the beginning if we really would use the whole length of this tape, and we were, and we were shooting in various hotel corridors, obviously, you know, rich, luxurious hotels, uh, in various parts of the world, and it's a. It's 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 amazing, and I and I wasn't sure, but then in the editing, I really, I really thought, no, 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 we have to use it in full length, and we travel very steadily and very slow through these hotel floors, and understand, you know, that it's kind of triggering our own fantasy. What's happening behind all these closed doors, right? And yeah, no, and- absolutely. I mean, I think the film does that very well generally because you haven't recreated any assaults or any rapes. There's no rape scene yes. in this film. But what you do have, and I mentioned Samantha Morton earlier, but people like Angela Yao, Jennifer Ely, fantastic performers coming in. And some of the men are good too, I must say. Fantastic performances there. But but these women playing these survivors, you've you've shot, you know, essentially dialogue scenes, in, scenes in cafes yes. where they're telling their story and they're so moving um, and you've obviously avoided being explicit. Tell me about that choice, and and how do you how have you gotten such wonderful performances from these actors? Were they were, were they very rehearsed? <laughs> well, I have to say, I probably spent most of my time in preparation to really study the work of actors, and you know, because I think that that after all is are the most important decisions to to know who to ask 
to join in front of the camera, behind the camera, and I couldn't be happier about uh, these performances. But uh, I also take it a little bit as a compliment <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, Samantha Morton, that scene, it's almost 10 minutes long and uh, and it's it's very pure and it goes back to almost ancient narratives, you know, like one person tells a story and the other person listens and we all join in listening. And, and, uh, and I find it fascinating also from a filmmaker's point of view to really trust that simplicity. And at the same time, um, not let go for a second of you know emotional connection so it's also you know it's 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 a very intense work and we shot a whole day on on on, on this scene and of course we had long conversations before sam and i and uh it's just yeah putting your trust on a voice and a face and you know, a fantastic counterpart, because that is a very difficult, you know, uh, neglected part of acting, being able to listen. And, um, and then, of course, into our own imagery, because you see an image of a person telling something, and at the same time, that narrative creates additional imagery in our own heads. And I, I really like the, the simultaneous existence of imagery in instead of depicting assault. I think we had enough rape scenes and I don't want to add imagery of violence against women. Maria Schrader, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for having me. Filmmaker Maria Schrader, she said, is out in cinemas this week. A very good film. And later in this episode of The Screen Show, I'll play you an excerpt from an interview with Australian director Kitty Green about her 2019 drama, The Assistant, also inspired by the Weinstein scandal, which you can watch over at Netflix. This is The Screen Show. My name's Jason DeRosso. And now we travel to Denmark and the period film Margaret, Queen of the North, about a medieval monarch who united Denmark, Norway and Sweden in one of the most fruitful and enduring geopolitical accords the world has ever seen. And we're not too far removed from concerns of gender and power. This is a lavishly appointed film of sweeping grey landscapes and shadowy stone castles. And at its core is a magnetic performance by Trine Dierholm, who, as Queen Margaret, faces a grave dilemma. A young man appears out of nowhere at her court, claiming to be a son that she believed was long dead. The timing is terrible. She is preparing a strategic marriage between her stepson and heir with an English princess. As you'll hear in my interview with director and co-writer Charlotte Sealing, who's another actor-turned-filmmaker like Maria Schrader, this dilemma is inspired by true events, but the film imagines something that historians have never confirmed, and that is that Margrethe believed this stranger was in fact her son, and that she found herself grappling with a terrible choice. Either embrace him and threaten the stability of alliances forged on the basis of her stepson being her heir, or reject him in order to maintain delicate political accords that were years in the making. The nuanced exploration of this quandary is what makes this drama worth seeking out. Charlotte Sealing is coming up. Mine herrer, tillad mig at spørge om deres navn. Jeg er kong Ole Fåkonsen. Hvem er det som sitter på min trone? Charlotte Sealing, welcome to the screen show. Thank you so much. This is a film uh, that has a similar idea to your previous film called The Man, which came out in 2017. And I haven't seen, I have to confess. However, I know that it's about a, an artist who meets a child he never knew he had. 
And this film, Margaret, Queen of the North, is also about a child who enters the life of a, of a parent in, an, in unusual circumstances, let's say, after a long period of estrangement. Tell me the reason why you return to this theme. Well, the moment you say all that, then I have to say that the next movie is also about a father who's going to Syria in 2014 trying to find his son. So it is a theme that keeps on uh, knocking on my door, I would say. Also, my first movie wasn't about that, but you had the kids standing right there looking at the crazy old grown-ups about divorces. So I guess it's just a point of view that it's maybe it's the um, when I when I did the man, I had this thing that I I ended up thinking whilst writing that can a child ask his or her parents about anything else but life? And that's a dilemma that I think I'm just interested in. What can you ask of your parents? And also the other way around, what can you ask your children to do? What what's your you know, what is your um, responsibility towards each other? Uh, so I think it's, a, it's, an, it's an ongoing question and I don't have any answers really. I'm just looking at the relationship. Tell me about Queen Margaret and, and as a historical figure, how well is she known to Scandinavians and, and how do they view her legacy? I mean, that's why we actually found out we wanted to tell the story because a very few people really know much about her. And it is, in my opinion, it is a question that she made peace for 123 years, and that's not interesting in the history books. You know, they want wars and uh, a very male uh, gaze on power. So once we, uh, I knew she, I knew of her only because my father had all the king's portraits back to the first Gorm den Gamle, his name, and then he had a, um, a portrait of Margaret as well. So I knew she was there, but I, I don't remember having, you know, having had about her in school very much. And we don't have big, stat- we have two statues hidden away in a little city and another place about her, but no streets, nothing in about her legacy. In, in our, we have so many statues in Copenhagen of men. So uh, that was kind of, let's just let the audience know that she actually existed and yeah and yet she's she is a remarkable figure as your film points out she was responsible for setting up a very long period of stability politically exactly and that's just amazing that she gathered the nordic country and greenland and uh, iceland and the faroe islands and a piece of england together uh so it was the biggest area the biggest what you call it uh, union or the biggest country you could almost say in europe at that time so she was kind of so big so huge and the crazy thing about it is that it was all men she worked with and they wanted her as their uh reign they just wanted her to do it especially also when her son died at 17, when he was 17, or did he die? That's our question. Then she went to the big councils and said, the Nordic councils and said, how, what can we do now? I don't have a son to reign in, in, in uh, for, so how do we do this? And they said, please stay with us, please. It was such a love uh, commitment from the whole council that they said, we we want you to do it, even though it's not possible for a woman, but but please stay until you have found a new king. So, you know, all these men were, understood that she was the person who actually could give them wealth, peace, uh, and community. Communities that worked, uh, trade, everything worked. They were so rich. And when she was a kid, a kid she was 10 years when she was married to the Norwegian king. She, she was a Danish princess, not a Danish queen. Then she married us at 10 with a Norwegian king. And she was poorer than the peasants of Norway. She was sitting in the, in the castle in Oslo and writing a letter to her, her husband when she was 17 and had a kid. And she, the letter tells us that she had absolutely nothing to eat. So her story is remarkable. 
Yeah, well, it certainly is, and um, an amazing figure. She's played here by Trini Deerholm, who I didn't realise this, but is also a singer, and she's been a singer since she was a child. Um, how, yeah. how well known? Tell me about this casting, because this must be like casting, yeah. I mean, a household name, certainly, and someone who comes yeah. with a lot of baggage in a way. Like, people must know her in... Oh, yeah. In Scandinavian countries <laughs> yeah. as being like a child singer and then, a, you know, a star of the screen yeah. later on. Um, tell yeah. me about that. Well, I hadn't worked with Trini because actually I, I was the last eight years I was working in the U.S. <clears throat> and before that, we never actually uh, crossed paths. Yeah. So uh, what happened was actually that Trini, we met a couple of times in at different parties and social things and she... She came out over and said, oh, so what are you doing now? And I knew exactly what she was asking for. What are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm doing a little bit of this and that and going back to the U.S. And then the next party we went to, she said, so tell me, what is it that you're actually writing right now? And I, and I said, well, she knew because it's, it, it's the Institute has, you know, it's written that I'm supported by the Institute. So she knew I was doing this. But I wasn't ready, actually, to act, to really say she was, of course, on the top of the list. Three, three Danish amazing actresses was there. But then finally I said, yes, we can have a conversation, but I don't know what I'm doing right now. I'm still writing and I'm thinking. And that's actually how Trina works. She's not. She's just going for what she wants to do. So she actually stalked me until she had the part. And I wasn't, you know, it was not difficult because I was really having her right there. But the fact that she was just going for it was, of course, for me, a big, uh, a big thing that have an actor that really goes for, I want to do this. That really wants the role. So it didn't, it didn't yes. unnerve you. It didn't put you off that she was, I mean, what was she doing? She no, was sending no, you no. emails. Was she no. ringing you in, in the middle of the night? No, she wasn't, but she just, you know, it was, she was approaching me very beautifully. So it was, it was so good. And then once you, you begin to work with Trina, she's so, uh, she's just a very passionate actress who, who is more interested in the part and the story than her, about herself. She's excellent in the role. I mean, she's so good in the yeah. role. And, and, you know, this is such a psychologically complex character. And for yeah. the dilemma that she faces, here she is confronted by a man who claims that he is her son, who she believed to be dead. And this happened in history, but I think you've taken some, there's some artistic license here in your film. Tell me about that. So you've sort of pushed it so that it becomes much more of a psychological dilemma for this queen. Uh, we were looking for the story because we knew we wanted to tell a story about Margaret, but how should we approach it? And it took us a couple of years until we found in the history books three lines telling a story about the false Olaf. And then we realized if we can talk about this guy that comes up and, and says that he's her, her son, then we have like a Shakespearean drama because it's one event that, sh that maybe it will tell us a lot about her. So what we, we were reading into it and then we understood that the, the science, you know, the scientists, historical scientists had, hadn't really, uh, on, they hadn't looked enough on this uh, subject to understand what really happened. So we had an artistic little uh, little uh, free space where we could actually say, since there's no historical evidence for anything here, we, we can say what Stanislavski says, what if? What if? The, because then we were, were thinking, who, who would come to the Danish court that is the, the, or the, 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 the Nordic court saying, I'm your son? I mean, that's suicide. Who would do that if you're not that person? And then we went into a lot of different things that really gave us a little bit of a belief in that it might be true that she actually got rid of him because of peace. And if that's the story, then we would really tell the story of this woman who gave everything she had for peace in her lifetime and in her area in the Nordic countries. And that was... It just all of a sudden it made sense, and I'm an actress from the beginning, and I've been studying Shakespeare, and I know, you know, also as a writer, I know that find one event, see if you can 
by taking everything else away and it's only like some month in her life, you might be much more able to tell much more about this character. And and the and I really felt that also we were writing for six years because it's difficult to write fiction into real reality and not, you know, some of the executives came and say, you need a war, put a war in and be much more interesting. We need the audience to see a war. And we could just say, but read this history. There's no wars there. There's nothing. There's a marriage with a young uh, English princess. And we had to commit to that reality. I couldn't kind of put something in that wasn't there. The only thing I could put in that nobody knows if it's there is who was she? How was she feeling? And then the fact that she kills him, uh, that was a thing that arise that for a long time we said we cannot we cannot say she did this and he was her son but at a certain moment we the the script told us in a way that the movie had to take a stand the we as storytellers had to say this happened we cannot keep on saying we don't know if it happened we have to jump into the fiction will win now and say this happened yeah so you, right. you 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 and it's quite a daring thing you you come out on one side of history of the possibilities of history here in this film and and it's the most interesting interesting side of course which is you essentially make a mother weigh up i mean the drama of this film is that this mother has to weigh up her love for her son versus her sense of duty for hundreds of thousands millions of people in this in this large kingdom um I'm also very curious about this notion that really this is a this is a project that had to um, that that had to in a way run counter to the expectations of studio executives and so forth who want conflict of a certain type. And as you say, there were no wars during her reign because Queen Margaret was so successful that she was actually she actually oversaw a period of great prosperity and, and peace. So this becomes, this is why this film is, um, is, is a very internal film. It's a very psychological film um, with a lot of drama on screen, I should say as well. Where did you shoot it? I mean, in terms of the look of the film, it's a dramatic film. It's, it's got intense contrast. Um, there are beautiful landscapes. Where did you shoot it? We shoot it in the Czech Republic. There's no water, there's, there are no mountains where we were. And then we had uh, so many green screens and a drone flying over Nordic countries. So all the Nordic countries are actually the right ones, but they are computer animated. So we have all the things we did in the Czech Republic with all the riding is actually in 200 meters in a, on a flat uh, field. And we put it all in, in all those places we are is only 200 square meters. When the last guy was galloping, the first one had to stop because we don't have, we didn't have more space to ride. So everything, every time you see somebody ride, they were riding in the same place in Czech Republic. And then we put it into the beautiful scenery that our drones were filming. And is that expensive to do? I mean, once upon a time that, that would have been in, perhaps yeah. incredibly expensive and so forth. How, it is. It is. It's still expensive then. Yeah. I mean, this movie, if you tell Americans or Australians uh, that this is $10 million, people would say that's not possible. And that's the most expensive Danish movie ever made. But $10 million is approximately what it was. And uh, we just found, you know, co-producers that could go in and we, we, we just kind of knitted it all together. So it worked, but it is expensive. Are you saying that this is the most expensive Danish film made? Yeah. Ah, right. 70 million Danish kroner, $10 million. Yep. <clears throat> and how much of those, how much of that money was spent on those effects, things like that? Uh, I don't really know. But a large percentage? No, because that's not how it works. Very little percentage, because, you know, all the money goes for every film day. That's the big thing, going, having the whole crew and the whole thing going in Czech Republic. That's where the big money oh, that's, spent. Sure, sure. That, that's what I meant with my previous question as well. Like I was wondering how much yeah. the computer graphics and the yeah, computer exactly. but costs, but not. Much, I don't really know, actually. Mm. Uh, maybe a tenth. 
Right. And, and tell me about the, the language that is used, because obviously when, when you do films like this in English, there's always an old English that, that gets used. I'm wondering how similar the Danish yeah. was in this era, in the, in the Middle different. Ages. It's very different? Yeah, it, was, it is maybe not very, but, uh, but what we did, because it's a, you know, you always have to find out not to make an, a dated movie that's not interesting. You have to make a movie for today. So for these countries up here watching the movie, it's very beautiful because you have the Swedish language, you know, we didn't language and the Danish language. And that is like a love story between our three countries. It's always been, it's hate and love in one big, you know, we've been really, as the story said, we've been killing each other. But we also really also, I've worked a lot with the Swedes and some Norwegians in my career. And it's all always so exciting because we are very different and very alike. So you have this cacophony, we call it, you know, when you have like the, 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 of all these three uh, languages. And for Nordic audience, it's very beautiful. We really like to hear that. And then there are some, we found some, uh, you know, clips, sound clips of how it sounded, the, the Nordic languages at that time. And it's like the Vikings did, you know, when you hear that they speak in a Nordic way, or it sounds like Icelandic and stuff like that. But that was not interesting to us. With these amazing actors, we needed them to speak their own language. And if you take a language away from an actor, you take a little bit away from their bones, in a way, in my opinion. Yeah, well, that's Uh, true, too. Tell me about, um, I'm interested in these themes of you know, women rulers and what your thoughts are about female leadership. You've directed a lot of television in the US, but I was interested, you've directed episodes of Borgen, which of course has these themes of female leadership. Um, and more recently we've we've seen, you know, Scandinavia has, has been generally, the, these Nordic countries are generally considered to be quite progressive when it comes to gender. Is this yeah. story about this historic queen, such a successful ruler, do you think in some way it presents a kind of origin story for that progressivism or is, is there something that the film communicates that has endured, do you feel, in these Scandinavian countries when it comes to gender and women in, in power? I think it's a question that is so powerful right now because like Black Lives Matter, LGBT... Q plus everything that's happening right now in the world uh, at the same time as the, you know, Trump on one side. And I mean, there's so much going on, war in Ukraine, war all over the world, whatever. Then we really, we have an opportunity right now, I think, about really reinventing ourselves. Every time we, I'm writing another story with a guy, a, a lovely writer, and he's struggling with, you know, he says the line is, when I look at, black people or Asian people. I don't see people that are black or Asian. I just see normal people. And I have to hit him with a bat and say, but you are not, you cannot say that you are a white privileged man. You have to open your gaze because he's a very nice person, but he needs to, you know, get it going for him. And I think it's the same thing with the whole gender thing that we, we just have to tell stories. And I do that now. It took me a while. I was 50 before I actually understood the patriarch way that I've been raised and even when i write i'm just writing a tv show for not next year but the year after that i'm going to shoot and i had a mixed race woman to read it a writer and she said what are you doing with the black people here come on guys we're in 222 we have a language now come on so you know you have to seek all the time the new way of thinking because this is the way we've been thinking for 2000 years so i guess of course margaret it's many years ago that i started about her to think about it because it was growing but I wasn't even aware about about that this is so important but it became a movie for its own time and I think that's very often how we work as storytellers we we have an intuition and many years later we understand that we're in the middle of we are uh, in the middle of our time and life and the moment you're no longer in the middle of your own time then you might not want to tell stories anymore because there's an urgency into everything I do. And sometimes I don't even know why it's so urgent for me. But then along the way, I understand even the, all the television I made was 
different things that I said yes before even knowing if it was important or I found a little thing that I, why am I so interested in this? Or, you know, so I think storytellers just have to jump into the big pool and, 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 and try to understand what's interesting for me and then trust in that what's interesting for me is interesting for everybody, actually, because I'm just, I'm just a speaker of the bigger voice. Charlotte Sealing, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Filmmaker Charlotte Sealing. Margaret, Queen of the North, has preview screenings around the country this weekend and then releases wider next week. Finally, as mentioned too, an excerpt now from an interview with Australian writer-director Kitty Green about her film The Assistance, which came out in 2019. It stars Ozark's Julia Garner, and it's a depiction of dystopian office life with its petty politics and cruel HR power plays. The film focuses on a personal assistant working in a film production company with a very murky corporate culture. If you've ever thought you're wasting your life away cleaning up other people's coffee mugs in a windowless kitchenette, well, this film feels you. Does she break out or does this place break her? This darkly impressionistic response to the Weinstein scandal is great stuff from Green, who's one of our best young filmmakers and currently back in the country, by the way, working on a new film with Julia Garner and Hugo Weaving called The Royal Hotel. Check out The Assistant over at Netflix and her documentary hybrid, Casting John Benet, as well. Kitty Green is next. Hi. What address do you have? Okay, uh, hang on. Right. Uh, I'm not sure what happened there. Um... Sorry, who? Okay, let me check on that. I'll get back a to you. Girl. She says she starts today. Uh, hey. There's a girl waiting at reception. She says that she's supposed to start here today. Working here with us? Where's she from? Where's she from? Idaho. Idaho? Idaho? Is that the one you met in Sun Valley? Oh, her. She's been here before. A few times. Uh, send her in. Well, Kitty Green, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You've made uh, documentaries up until this point, uh, although, of course, you've explored the documentary drama hybrid. Um, were there aspects of your documentary practice or technique as a filmmaker that you brought to this, your first narrative feature? Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, I think a lot of my sort of references and things that I watch are documentaries. So I think it does influence the work and the way I went about making this film. Obviously, it's quite observational in the way it's sort of put together. So, yeah, I mean, definitely. And I, But there are things I could do with a fiction piece that I couldn't do with a doc. So that, uh, yeah, led me to kind of use kind of fiction with its one as opposed to making it a straight documentary. Yeah, what what was it exactly? Could you expand on that? What what pushed you over into a fully-fledged, full-blown narrative feature? Because, of course, you know, looking at something like the Weinstein scandal, for example, quite directly is obviously great material for a documentary, but you didn't choose to take that very direct route. You've chosen to do something more allegorical and uh, and invent a story. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at trying to do something that was more about the culture, more about systems and structures than about any one person or any one story. So in that sense, I was I was focusing in on like microaggressions and sort of tiny looks and gestures and sort of behavior that often goes overlooked and f- wanting to find a way to amplify that or get an audience to recognize when it, when it's okay and when it's not. So um, that was something I could do with a fiction film, with the close-up and with time and with and be, by being able to really put the audience in the shoes of the lead character, we're kind of going on an emotional journey with her and hopefully we can identify with kind of her struggle to find her way and the way she's being kind of shut down by this company. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, from, from the way you're talking, it sounds like as a filmmaker, you you were wanting to flex those muscles of those almost purely formal muscles to explore theme here. You mentioned sort of close up. And I mean, this is a film that does play with uh, ideas of framing, what's not seen, ideas of location to express inner psychological states and so forth. And it's a sort of tone 
and a directorial register that reminds me a lot of classic art cinema. Can you tell me a little bit about your influences on the formal construction of this film, The Assistant? Uh, yeah, gosh, I mean, it. I sort of began with Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman is the biggest influence, I guess, on the film in its use of time and rhythm and gesture and routine. So I guess that was kind of the first influence. But I was watching a lot of, I mean, even things like Full Metal Jacket, like films that kind of that explore kind of the dehumanization of of people. So I guess I was looking at a bunch of different things. And then also office comedies, nine to five, <laughs> things like that, um, yep. that took place in an office space. And just looking at kind of how to create tension um, and drama, like under these fluorescent lights, um, there's a lot of Fincher references for lighting, like Mindhunter and Zodiac and things like that. So it was kind of a mixed bag, really. The office you depict here is a very, very sinister place. Can you tell me more about how you found the office or constructed it? Uh, is it a real office? Um, presumably, if it's a real office, you would have had to go through a lot of work to to then paint it in these sinister shades of sort of beige and grey. Tell me about that. Oh, no, we just found an existing office in Manhattan in Times Square, actually. Like, we built a few walls in order to kind of make sort of um, contained spaces. But, yeah, it was it was all kind of there. It wasn't a lot of big work. What does that say about the modern modern office real estate, that it just automatically looks sinister? Yeah, I think it's also, I mean, the lighting is a big thing and the sound. We, we, spent, we had a big sound team and sound um, design period. So I think all of that contributes to making it look as eerie as it does. Tell me about the, what attracted you to tell the story in this way through the eyes of this young woman uh, played by Julia Garner, focusing on sinister nuances and pent up frustrations. I mean, this is very much the view from the other side of the office door and she if you were to be less charitable and in a less charitable telling of, of this character's story could almost be seen as an enabler. Was that key to the attraction of telling this story that you wanted to implicate the audience in a way into this very sinister structure that, that does impose a kind of top-down discipline and, and a sense of, oh, I don't know, going along with things that you shouldn't go along with? Yeah, I mean, I was. It kind of all came about when I was. I was looking at all the Me Too coverage, and there seems to be a lot of focus on these these bad men, these sort of rotten apples, and this idea that if we get rid of Harvey Weinstein or we get rid of, you know, so and so, then we will everything will be fixed. And I was sort of trying to make a film that explored that the fact that there's so much bigger than any of these guys. Like it's a cultural and systemic problem that we need to sort of address by unpicking kind of everyday like learned behaviour, unconscious bias, gendered division of labour, like all of these kind of issues were really important to me. So, um, yeah, following – and I guess when I was chatting to people about the the character, a lot of people would say, oh, she's an enabler. And I wanted to explore kind of the complexity of the position she's in. She's the person with the least power um, at a very powerful film company, and she's, she is – the system is – sort of inherently structured against her and she's trying to find her way through it. And um, all of that was really, um, I mean, tricky and, and, and interesting. And I guess that sort of started me off on the journey. Filmmaker Kitty Green and an excerpt from an interview recorded in 2020 about The Assistant, which is on Netflix. The full audio of that interview at the Screen Show website. I'm Jason DeRosso. It's time to go. Thanks to producer Sarah Corbett and to the Royal Sound Engineers of the RN Regiment. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.